Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you conversations with and about the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know the names, and you definitely know the songs. We bring you the stories. Keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, or our website by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. While Songcraft is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. There you can help support us with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support. You're listening to I Hope You Dance, which was named NSAI, ASCAP, CMA, ACM, and Grammy Country Song of the Year. It was co-written by Nashville Songwriters Hall of Famer Mark D. Sanders, who has written over a dozen number one singles and is our guest in part three of this episode of Songcraft. In part two, we'll talk about our favorite subject, Patreon. But first, in part one, since we spend so much time talking about songs that come out of Nashville, we want to take a little time to discuss songs about Nashville. Part one. Paul, it's good to see you again, my friend. Yeah, man, it's been a while. It's been two months. Jeez. Through the... um, how did you manage? <laughs> I soldiered on. Somehow, well, for our listeners, we have stayed on schedule of putting yes. out episodes, but I have to confess we pre-recorded quite mm-hmm. a bit of stuff because I was going to be out of town for uh, off and on for the better part of a couple months. I just, yeah. in fact, got back from Israel. Finding yourself. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I was... Uh, I was Where I was were off, you? <laughs> <laughs> off in the Holy Land. Um, Amazing. Pilgrimage. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And, and, you know, I wore the... The buckled shoes, as a pilgrim would. Uh, so I'm glad to be home and get those off. That's why it took so long. The Mayflower yeah, it's, it's, it's slow. It's not, not slow quick. way to travel. But uh, y- you actually had, uh, you know, people when they go to Israel, they go, "Oh, it's life changing." Yeah. But you, your life actually changed a little more than mine <laughs> because you and your wife had your second child. Yeah, we have a baby, a, a brand new baby in the house. Uh, she is. Yeah, right around six weeks old. So you left right around the time she she came. Yeah, so yeah. I don't know if that was on purpose, but um, <laughs> well, I was just glad to, that she was healthy because you know in the Father's Day episode, which was as I said pre-recorded, <laughs> I said Paul just became a dad for the second time, and when I said that, we were actually about ten days before. Yeah, there was no baby. Yeah, yeah. So. I, I don't want you guys to think that that we lie on, on this podcast, <laughs> not but, regularly. But that day we we lied. We but, had to lie so that I could go to the Holy Land. But not now, <laughs> now there is a baby, and uh, yeah, happy healthy baby still uh trying to figure out how to sleep yeah but other than that uh it all seems well well at least it's been 109 degrees uh <laughs> here in la for the last couple yeah. of days so uh, you know a screaming non-sleeping baby is a really i think the perfect enhancement to the stifling yeah. heat yeah yeah i think it's like if, if i can't find my scarf to where i'll just wrap a human <laughs> around my around my neck exactly <laughs> yeah. um well, it, it's good to be back, back in the, uh, you know, dusting off the cobwebs of, uh, of Songcraft here today. And we've actually got an episode, um, we've done a few recently where uh, it's people who are based in Nashville, yeah. and it's just me interviewing them. 
Yeah, and, and I think you know people will wonder why is that. I think the first is that we don't generally travel together. Not, not typically. Uh, I, no. I like you, but yeah. we haven't made travel plans yet. No, um, no, I don't think that's in the cards in the in the immediate future. And then you're you're there wheeling and dealing, and you're able to do these interviews, and I usually end up in some writing room somewhere. Well, I, I was in, I was actually gonna put it more like you know I go to Nashville and and spend my evenings uh, you know screwing around having conversations with songwriters while you're actually writing songs. <laughs> well, I I'm trying to do that, uh, you know, yeah. and it's kind of like the, if you can't do teach, you know, <laughs> so if you can't do talk to the ones who, who do, I guess. Right. Uh, so while you're off actually working, I am I'm farting around and, and capturing these these conversations. And I'm but, so glad you are. Uh, I, I, you know, it's a, it's it's a good thing to be a part of uh, if I can't write the hits. And I got to say, <laughs> my father always says, he who doth not tooteth his own horn, his horn doth not get tooted. Wow. But. That's not true because I'm going to toot your horn on your behalf because I'm going to wow. say this. I'm proud of you, my friend. Well, thank you. You just today, as we speak, this is not pre-recording. This is the <laughs> this is the magic of today. Just found out that you have a number one song on the Christian chart. Yeah. Um, fellow named Aaron Cole. One more day. Yeah. Is that song? And uh, congrats. Thank that's, you. That's awesome. Yeah, your just... second number one, by the way. Pretty amazing. It's, yeah. 2018 has been quite the year already. It has. Jordan Felice hit number one with Witness yeah. recently. Uh, you were just in Nashville. I was actually not around at that point having one of my conversations. I was, you know, off you wherever. But In another hemisphere but, uh, at that point. Yeah. In, yeah, but you went there to receive a platinum record award for uh, Lauren Daigle's album, the uh, How Can It Be album, yeah. which you wrote a couple songs on. Um that's a pretty big deal to get a platinum record nowadays because wow. no records don't sell. It, it's true, uh, and it's it's pretty amazing. It's something I think everybody involved in it, it's stepping back and went, it's just saying, "Wow, you know that that it actually kind of moved that many copies." Well, all I'm trying to do is build up enough hardware that I can put it on my wall and make my place look impressive enough that maybe we can interview somebody at my place one day. Yeah, because you know, yeah. right now, you know, your place is Songcraft headquarters, and right. my house has always felt like kind of a, a stepchild right. to the process. So yeah. I, I feel if if I can just get some some plaques and some hardware, to yeah, put on look legit, exactly. But you know you got those kids and it's it's really hot there and it's a, it's a whole thing. So <laughs> they'll end up just like a big like blob of yogurt on the platinum record. I, I'm gonna say within about a month, <laughs> or on whatever Songcraft guest we bring there. <laughs> totally. Um, well, you know the fact that we both grew up in Nashville. We're talking to a, a Nashville-based uh, writer today. Um, we were kind of kicking around this idea of. What are the songs about Nashville or songs that reference Nashville? You know, sometimes we like to do these little rundowns of songs about whatever topic it is. But, you know, this is a Nashville kind of day. I think we're both just dreaming about Nashville and the stifling heat and humidity that's there (laughs) that amazingly, for once, is better than than it is here in L.A. So as we sit here in this uh, baby pool full of ice uh, having this conversation... um, Let's let's get a little nostalgic about our hometown, um, and I'm just gonna throw out. I, I've got a handful of songs that you know off the top of my head that that are kind of Nashville songs, and you might have some. We might have some of the same ones, but uh, I've always been a big Steve Earle fan. Yeah. And Guitar Town, which is not you know it doesn't say Nashville, but Nashville was the CB handle 
for or Guitar Town rather was the CB handle for Nashville. I didn't know that. Or still is, I guess. Yeah, like it, for anyone who still has a CB. Pulling into Guitar Town, buddy. You know wow. that kind of thing. I yeah. like that. Yeah. So uh, that's you know in the song he says I'm going to take you back with me to the Guitar Town and and, and that's Nashville. That's Nashville. Yeah. So it's a subtle reference, but being a longtime Steve Earle fan, that's one of the ones that uh, that I like. You know, I had a harder time with this assignment. Um, I, I actually feel like the kid that showed up and, and wasn't able to get his stuff together for the pop quiz, which is huh, a I've super never, familiar. Never known you yeah. to be that kid. <laughs> that's that's a familiar feeling to me. Um, if it was Memphis, I feel like I would have done so much better. You right, know? of course. But that that would have been easy. So the, the one that popped right into my mind was a song called Nashville by the Indigo Girls. Oh yeah. Um, it's kind of a, a bittersweet tune. Had a little bit cynicism towards the town, which I think probably a lot of writers and singers have that type of feeling toward Nashville. So that that one popped into my head right away. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good one. I had that record. Ah, that was on um, Rites of Passage. That's right with Galileo. Yeah. Yeah. I like the Indigo Girls, man. Yeah, I like the Indigo Girls, too. If either or both of the Indigo Girls are listening, we would love to have you. Come on in. We'd love to have you. Yep. We'll do it at my house because you'll get yogurt thrown on you at at (laughs) Paul's house. Um, Okay, so this song isn't really about Nashville, but it references Nashville. Willie Nelson's song, Me and Paul, which is kind of about his adventures with his drummer, Paul English. And plus, I mean, hey appropriate for me to reference that's a song right. called me and paul because yep. that's our because i am nashville to you yeah you you are nashville <laughs> but uh there's a, that, a great line in that song i guess nashville was the roughest but i know i've said the same about them all we received our education in the cities of the nation me and paul that's but good nashville was the roughest Nashville's is such a roughest. great uh such <laughs> a great a great line um so yeah i think that's a, a nice nod there as well you know, one that uh, that I thought of, and, and it's I'm glad you threw that one out because it's not called Nashville. It doesn't have in the title, but it references it. And so yeah. does this song. It's uh, Sean Mullen's uh, Rockabye. Oh, uh, yeah. Which, if you don't know it by Rockabye, you know it as everything's going to be all right. Yep. That's the, the... Rockabye. Yeah. Um, and he's got that line. He's singing about L.A., and he mm. says it's like Nashville with a tan. It's <laughs> a good line. Yeah, it's, it's actually... <laughs> I remember at the time when it came out thinking, God, that's... What what a great phrase, you know? Right. Um, I say that from time to time here in L.A. No one knows what I mean, but <laughs> I liked it in the song. Yeah. yeah. I looked like Sean Mullins at the time you that totally Sean Mullins... Did. Yeah. Yeah. Now I look like I ate Sean Mullins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with um, a side of Tal Bachman. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, little Edwin McCain on the side. Um, so... Uh, there's a song from the mid 1920s by Bessie Smith called Nashville Women's Blues, Jeez. and uh, it's kind of cool because obviously it's like this blues song, and it's all basically about like how people in Nashville like to drink a lot. <laughs> and uh, Louis Armstrong actually plays on that record, wow. and I just think it's cool that back in the 20s, everybody obviously associates Nashville with country music, but Nashville's always been a mecca for more music than just yeah. country. There's always been a lot of R and B and blues and gospel, and you know, it's a it's a real melting pot of a lot of different types yeah. of music, which I think everybody knows now with Jack White and you know that whole thing. But it really always has been, and so uh, so I like that one just because it reminds us that you know there was like some blues music yeah. about Nashville all the way back in the twenties. I'm starting to feel a little bit better about not being so prepared for this challenge because you're pulling songs out from like the library of Congress archives. <laughs> <laughs> These are deep, deep pulls, deep cuts. Yeah, totally. Like from the Alan Lomax, like he's walking around with his, <laughs> his portable recorder back in the twenties. Um, so this next one, uh, 
I'm hoping you'll remember this. But this was a song when growing up in Nashville. Sometimes, in between like commercials, you'd see an advertisement for Nashville, right? Which I always thought was kind of strange, <laughs> or an advertisement for Tennessee. Do you remember yeah. "Follow Me to Tennessee"? Oh yeah, remember those commercials. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dolly Parton had a commercial called "All Roads Lead to Nashville." Do you mm. remember that song? I All don't. Roads Lead to Nashville, Music City, USA. Nah, I don't remember that one. I, I'm not sure why they were advertising to us about our own town. <laughs> like we already lived there. Um, maybe just, <laughs> but uh, I, maybe I should try to pull that up and yeah, I, I'd like to find a clip of it. They're uh, you know maybe they were hoping we would we would remember that Nashville was a tourist destination and and tell our our relatives in other states. <laughs> 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 Our relatives in other parts of Tennessee who refuse to drive in Nashville. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, Dolly Parton also had a song called Down on Music Row oh, about see? Nashville. So she was uh, representing. You see, now we've that. got a theme. Yeah, there you go. Um, okay, so uh, my wife's favorite band is the Counting Crows mm. because somebody's favorite band has to be the Counting Crows. Every band is and, somebody's favorite band. Yeah, so the Counting Crows is my wife's favorite band. And their first record... Uh, August and everything after yeah. first song opening line says she came from Nashville with a suitcase in her hand says she wanted me to boy who looks like Elvis oh yeah I remember yeah. that song yeah yeah and wait that's not the first line but it doesn't matter that's a line in the song <laughs> or is it the first line no it's not but the point is it's a reference to Nashville and my wife likes to sit at the piano in our living room as like a stress reliever and play every song on the August and everything after nice. album front to back. So I hear that song frequently. <laughs> so it, it makes me smile because it reminds me of my wife. And you are the boy that looks like Elvis. <laughs> Absolutely. Or the boy who ate Elvis, <laughs> who ate fat Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> but before eating Sean Mullen. <laughs> um, you know, I, the, I think I can close it out from my collection with a song about Tennessee. Is that close enough? I think it's, I think it counts. Um, Mindy Smith's Tennessee. I don't mm. know if you've heard that song. I have heard that song. That is one of the most beautiful songs I've heard in a long time. And because it happens to be about my old home state, yeah, it gets me every time I listen to it. Right, and I'll, right. I'll play it on repeat and just sit back and kind of sniff and think wistfully <laughs> about the old days. But if, right. if you guys haven't... First off, if you haven't heard Mindy Smith, check her out. Just an, an amazing, beautiful, haunting voice. Yeah. And, uh, and Tennessee is a, a standout song. She had, uh, years ago, had a cover of Jolene, yeah, bringing it back that. to Dolly. That yeah. was really great. But she's a great songwriter in her own right. Um, okay, well, the last one that, that I've got for us here is, um, for those who don't live in Nashville, there is a, a roundabout uh, at the end of Music Row, and it's got this statue called Musica. And it's, it's a huge <laughs> statue of naked people sort of reaching for the sky. Yeah. Uh, and, um, frankly, when that got put up, Nashville kind of freaked out a little yeah. bit. Like they were, I remember someone saying to me like, what is someone supposed to tell their children when they drive by that? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you, you try to bring a little fine art to, yeah. to Nashville and, uh, and it's, it's not well received because there was some, some light nudity. They got no pants involved. On. They got no, no paints. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And so the, everyone was talking about that when it came out. And Lee Thomas Miller, who's a very successful Nashville songwriter, he wrote uh, In Color, you know, that Jamie Johnson had a huge hit with, and yep. uh, um, Whiskey and You, Chris Stapleton. Yep. And oddly enough, just recently ran for, uh, for 
uh, Congress, like oh, U.S. Sense. Congress. Sure. <laughs> yeah, well, why not? But back in when the when the music statue went up, everybody was kind of talking about it. He wrote a pretty funny song called "Hillbilly Porn." <laughs> it was about the music statue and how everyone freaked out. Um, and I don't awesome. know if it was discovered that he wrote a song with the word porn in the title, and that's why he had to pull out of the uh, the, the Congress uh, seat <laughs> race there. You know, it was a scandal or what. But uh, but anyway, I always thought that song was pretty funny. And, and in terms of Nashville songs, that captured a moment in Nashville just about better than anybody could. I don't know if saying the word porn keeps you from running for office these days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess the bar has been moved since I last <laughs> <Yeah>. checked. <laughs> Well, uh, you've given me some homework. I got some songs to listen to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Part two. You know, as we move toward this Mark Sanders interview, Mark Sanders not only is a highly successful songwriter, he's also a Patreon member. And Which is amazing. Is right? that not amazing? Yeah. I mean, so we've got a handful of people who support our show at patreon.com slash songcraft show. Well done. And... Mark is one of them, which means that Mark listens to this show, which is a huge honor because, I mean, that guy is so successful that Dude. you would think he'd just be on his boat counting his money and be too busy <laughs> to uh, to listen to our show. But he does listen to it. While he's and, counting his money. <laughs> yeah. And, he, and then he sends a little of that money our way, yeah. uh, which, is, uh, which is very nice and very generous of him. And we really appreciate the people who... Um, who do donate and help keep, you know, it, it helps with our web hosting. It helps with the company that we use that actually hosts the audio files for the podcast itself. And, um, you know, the, the little amount of advertising that we do and, yeah. and all that stuff. So, um, we talk about Patreon from time to time here, but it really is just a way like the old, uh, model of public radio that like, if you believe in our mission, we sure appreciate the support. Yeah. So we do invite people to kind of check that out and, yep. and, and, and join the team. Yeah, it's one of those ways when you actually can be involved in, in a, a really important way in something that, that you care about. And sometimes, you know, you'll watch a show or listen to a show and, and just be like, oh, well, I'll never meet those guys or it's just something that comes through my car radio. Well, let me tell you, you can actually really help keep yeah. this thing moving and help be a part of what we're doing. Um, and, you know, we whenever we get an email or we see somebody that's, that's popped up and become a supporter, it's something that we will text each other and say, well, look, you know, somebody else is on board. Yeah. Um, it, it does mean a lot to us. And um, so we're, we're incredibly thankful to those of you who have um, gotten on board with us so far. Yes. So please feel free to go to patreon.com, patreon.com slash songcraft show check it out for as little as two bucks a month you can help support us and if enough of you do it maybe we can get air conditioning (laughs) (laughs) amazing yeah part three southern california native mark d sanders moved to nashville just before turning 30 and began building a career as a professional songwriter that eventually spawned 25 top 10 hits including more than a dozen number one singles his list of chart-topping hits includes Mirror, Mirror by Diamond Rio, Money in the Bank by John Anderson, Daddy's Money by Ricochet, It Matters to Me by Faith Hill, No News by Lone Star, Heads Carolina, Tales California by Jody Messina, Blue Clear Sky by George Strait, This Ain't No Thinkin' Thing by Trace Adkins, and That'd Be Alright by Alan Jackson. Other artists who've recorded Mark's songs include Garth Brooks, Reba McIntyre, Vince Gill, Martina McBride, Tracy Lawrence, Trisha Yearwood, and Guy Clark. Sanders was named Songwriter of the Year by the Nashville Songwriters Association in 1995 and 1996 and ASCAP Country Songwriter of the Year in 1997. 
Leanne Womack's recording of I Hope You Dance earned him Song of the Year honors from NSAI, ASCAP, the ACM, and the CMA, as well as a Grammy for Best Country Song and a Grammy nomination for Song of the Year across all categories. He was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2009. Mark, welcome to Songcraft. Well, it's good to be here, Scott. I hadn't seen you since you were a little boy. <laughs> <laughs> I know, that's that's true. I actually have a memory of you being at my parents' house when I was a little kid, and you were the tallest man that I'd ever seen yeah. in my life up to that point. Well, when I got to Nashville, they thought I was from some other country. So they probably <laughs> thought I was a Zulu or something, Zulu warrior. Right. And so I thought now that I'm all grown up, maybe uh, you wouldn't seem like the tallest man I'm I've ever seen. Tall. But yeah, you're still, you're still tall. You're still tall. Um, well, you've had phenomenal success as a country songwriter, of course. But I understand that you were actually born in Los Angeles and grew up in Orange County, California, which might not be exactly what people think of when they think country right. songwriter. What kind of music shaped and influenced you as a kid coming up? Well, I grew up, I was born in 1950, so, and I had four older siblings, so I grew up on the music of the 50s and the music of the 60s in Southern California, basically. You know, I listened to everything that my family listened to, including hmm. church, and as I got into high school, I, I started, I got a guitar when I was 15, and then I sort of diverged from... I kind of diverged into John Sebastian. Hmm, okay. And he led me, you know, he led me into country music and old country music and yeah. Mississippi John Hurt. And, hmm. and so so I just got into weird shit, basically. Right, right. So you're kind of this eclectic folky kid. I was the guy, yeah. Yeah. I, I always go back to, I think my freshman year of college, maybe, I got music from Big Pink. Oh yeah, and I yeah, put yeah. put it on the record player. And my brother and I shared a room, and and I, my brother looked at me like I'd lost my mind, <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. And I really did. I I lost my mind. I'm proud of it. <laughs> right, that's a classic album. Um, now I understand that that as a kid, your home life wasn't necessarily always ideal. No. What are what are some of the ways that, that music or playing instruments or even starting to make up songs of your own was kind of a refuge for you? Well, music was definitely a drug. And, you know, it was, I'd go up to my room and escape. Yeah. First it was from write, writing poetry or something, but then I learned to play songs and I'd just get away. You know, my dad was a bad alcoholic and he never never made any money. And, you know, the middle class was more inclusive back then, but our our membership was tenuous mm. at best. <laughs> By the time I was a senior in high school and our family kind of split up my in February of my senior year and I went and lived with another family. Mm. In the modern parlance, we would have been homeless. Yeah. But we just had, we had enough friends around that everybody went and lived with somebody else. And, yeah, yeah. And then my mom made enough money to get an apartment in June, and that was a rough time of my life. Yeah, I can imagine. And you were able to sort of channel some of that into yeah, the creativity. Into the music. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was all I had for a long time. 
Well, in 1980, you moved to Nashville to yeah. pursue a career as a songwriter. Talk about how you made the decision to do that and, and, and tell us about that very first year when you got to town and what you were doing to try to work your way into the songwriting community. Well, I, I had been, after I graduated from college, I was a VISTA volunteer, which is Volunteers in Service to America. It's like the Peace Corps, but in the U.S., and I went to right. Arkansas. Okay. And, you know, I was writing songs and and just kind of experiencing the South for the first time. Yeah. And then uh, uh, when VISTA ended, it was like a year and a half program. I thought, well, you know, I, I had no career guidance in my life, basically. Hmm. And I had two siblings who had been school teachers. So I thought, well, I probably should be a school teacher. Right. And I took a one of those uh, aptitude vocation aptitude things and you know it told me i should be either a minister or a psychologist mm. <laughs> i thought geez <laughs> that doesn't seem right <laughs> so i went and got my teaching thing yeah at the university of arkansas and then one night i woke up and i thought there's just too many guys with white shoes around here <laughs> i gotta go back to california <laughs> and my ex-wife and i moved to california and I taught school for three years. I got a job. In fact, I got the job that my brother vacated huh. when he quit teaching. And it was the, I was the most ill-suited teacher. So I suffered through t three years of teaching, and then I quit. And I had a couple of other jobs, and I just, you know, I was depressed. And I was just this guy who was up and down every day, and I never knew which way I was going to be. Yeah, yeah. And so after the second job... I just said to my ex-wife, I said, you know, I don't know what it means, but I need, either need to be a poet or a songwriter. Yeah. And at least a songwriter can buy a pizza, you know? <laughs> right. A poet has to rely on the generosity of friends. Right. A songwriter at least has a, <laughs> a shot at making a songwriter has money. a shot of making some money. And I wanted, and I, I had this unbelievable drive to do something that meant something to me. Yeah. And I, I was 29 and I was going to turn 30. And I thought, man, I can't turn 30 doing something that just doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, my wife, my ex was from Dallas. And so Nashville's closer to Dallas than LA is. And she was tired of Southern California. Yeah. And so we moved. You know, I guess I, I kind of thought I'd been listening to some country, but. Basically, John Sebastian was country for me. Right, right, right. So you weren't fully immersed. In no, <laughs> I definitely was not fully immersed. I had not been baptized. <laughs> right. So when you get to town, I mean, what do you, what do you do? So you, you well, arrive. What does what does one do as a as a first step? Well, you know, I was going to come without even even visiting. Hmm. I mean, I thought just like, well, we might as well we can you know stay at a motel for a week, right? Find a place to rent. But my mother, who, you know, didn't have money to spare, gave me $300 and said, you've got to go look. Yeah, right, right. And Scout I it did. Out. You know, I came here and I I had made a little demo of four songs. And I mean, the first, I flew the red eye and the first morning I went and met with people. Wow. I had set up, you know, I'd read all the magazines and <laughs> there weren't books about it at that point. Yeah. yeah. But I, the first person I met with was, was Diane Petty at mm. CSAC. I played these songs for her, and she looked up at me and she said, 
so are you thinking about moving here? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, come on. <laughs> God, I was so, I was so excited. Just, you know, all the encouragement you needed. <laughs> well, that was, yeah, that was it. I mean, I already decided. And yeah. then I met with other people and you know, it was, people were nice. Yeah. 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 Like, which was different from LA. Right. <laughs> Southern hospitality. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, your first real cut came in 1982 when Mel Tillis recorded A Matter of Wine. Talk about how you landed that cut and, and what it was like to hear someone who was a major star at the time yeah. singing something that you had written. Yeah, and I, they played it on WSM AM on the radio Yeah, when Mel was doing an interview. And I thought, man. Well, it was just, I had signed, I started writing with this guy who was a, a prom promoter. You know, mm -hmm. if it had been up to me, I would still not have a deal. <laughs> right, right, you know, right. 37 years later. But I, I, I hooked up with this guy at a workshop and he was like a salesman. Yeah. Which I had never really experienced this. But we'd write a song and he'd, he'd head right to Music Row to play it for people. And I'm thinking, God dang, I don't want people to hear my song. You know, what if it <laughs> right. sucks? I'll write them, but I don't want anyone <laughs> yeah, to hear them. <laughs> right. And, but... So he started playing our songs for people, and people were interested in us. Yeah. And so Acuff Rose offered us this great deal. They would pay us $100 a week, and we would sign a five-year contact with a contract with two five-year extensions on it. Wow. <laughs> so we did. Oh. <laughs> against, hey. against the best legal advice. But uh, Ronnie Gant, who was our who was kind of in charge at that point said, ah, don't worry about these things. They're not going to. And it was true because the company was about to be bought. Yeah. You know, it was going to fold. And they let me out after a couple of years yeah. when it was yeah. time to go. But so Ronnie was the great thing about Acuff Rose, although it was kind of a dying company, there were legends walking the halls. Mickey Newberry would be there and uh, Don Gibson would walk in wow. with his wife and, uh, Whitey Schaefer and Dallas Frazier, who's just still one of my heroes. Yeah. So anyway, I just got, and they had money. They had a studio. Right. So you could just go in and do work tapes. And, and Ronnie loved, he liked to demo. And, you know, they didn't charge us for the demos. Right. So it was a, it was a good experience because we spent yeah. a lot of time in the studio, which I had never been in. Yeah. And so I just started writing these songs for them, and I wrote A Matter of Wine by myself. And, I mean, in a very memorable experience, I got up in the middle of the night and wrote down this line in the chorus. It's, uh, dying's just a way of killing time when living's just a matter of wine. Hmm. And it was basically about my father. Hmm. And every time I'd write a song about my father, he'd die in the song. <laughs> <laughs> which what? I've come to understand. It was like he died when I was 17, basically. Yeah. But uh, See, you should have been a psychologist. I should have. <laughs> I understand a lot of things. Uh, and I wrote these lines down on a, on a coffee filter. And I thought, you know, maybe someday this filter will be in the Hall of Fame. Right. <laughs> so anyway, and, and then... We had a plugger named Jim Vino who had been a famous producer. He produced Hank Jr. and I think he produced Tillis at some point. Yeah. And so he took it over to Mel's place and said, you know, 
we got this young writer and he's got this cool song here. Yeah. And yeah. Mel, Mel sang it. All drinking helps a heart forget the past. Sleeping seems to make forgetting last. And dying's just a way. That same year, you hit the Billboard chart for the very first time with Ain't That the Way It Goes, which was recorded Dave by Kemp. Dave Kemp. Yeah, yeah. I think that went to the low 70s somewhere. Yeah. So, you know. Well, that's what a, you know, that's what a young songwriter, that's your life. Yeah, that's the, yeah. the, the juice you need to you keep go, going. You start yeah, at the low yeah. 70s, and then you get up into the mid-30s. Right, right, right. We had your first, that's uh, coming. You had your first top 40 with uh, with Vince Gill's version of O Carolina, yeah. which you wrote with Randy Albright and Jim Elliott. So you, you weren't exactly topping the charts, but the no, momentum but, was going. I yeah, mean, it, there was, was, it was happening. I always tell people there was always enough encouragement to keep doing it. Yeah. And after a year or so, AKF Rose doubled my salary. Nice. <laughs> Got so, up to 200. <laughs> yeah. But I was still working. I mean, I always had other jobs. I, in fact, I drove tours. I substitute taught. And then I was in charge of in-school suspension at Hillsborough High for two years hmm. while I was writing songs. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like I didn't pay my dues. Right. I definitely right, paid a bunch right, of dues. Right. Well, in that era, you had uh, there were a few other low charters for Butch Baker, uh, yeah. David Wills, the Whites, but you, you scored your first top ten in 1987 with uh, Judy Rodman's recording of Girls Ride, Ni- yeah. Girls Ride Horses Two, 1987. Girls Ride Horses Two. By that point, were you able to to sort of leave the other stuff behind and, and yeah. do songwriting? Yeah, by that point, my ex and I had divorced in 83, 84. And uh, I remarried in 86. Hmm. Cindy and I got married and uh, I got a deal. I, my friend Alice Randall was here. She came from Harvard to write country songs, a black woman from Harvard. <laughs> right. Uh, and she had a friend, Edith Gelfand from D.C., who wanted to start a little publishing company. So Midsummer Music was created, and I was their only hired writer. Right. And I got 400 a week. Yeah. And Cindy <laughs> was teaching school, so I could actually not do other jobs. Yeah, you could so focus just on that. that was the beginning of, you know, just writing songs. Right. Well, you, I mean, you really hit your stride in the in the early 1990s, kind of beginning with Diamond Rio's recording of Mirror, Mirror, which seems to have been, you know, a real turning point in your career. Yeah. Um, talk about that song and, and how it kind of, it, it was the rocket that sort of launched the, the whole next phase. Yeah. Well, in the late 80s, when I was at Midsummer, John Gerard and I, I have to say, when I first got to town, the first two people I met were Woody Bomar and John Gerard. <laughs> wow, wow. At the NSAI workshop. Yeah, you know? yeah. And we'd hang around NSAI because your dad was trying to get from the advertising into, right. into the publishing business. 
And John was a songwriter from uh, Gainesville, Georgia. So we had this long adventure that we started in 1980. And in about 88, John and I were still writing together. And one day we were in at my office on a snowy day. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, we should call Bob DePiro and see if he'll write with us. Because Bob had written American Made and had had hits already. Right. And so we did. And he said he would. Hmm. And that was like, I always had trouble writing with people who'd had more success than me. Because <laughs> I was, you know, I'd get nervous and uh, I was just kind of cowed by that. Right. And I would lose my gift, basically, too. <laughs> right. So, but Bob is just the greatest guy, the most charming. And he taught me how to do something that I didn't know how to do, which was to have fun and write a song at the same time. Huh. Interesting. And, and plus, he, he liked to write up-tempo, which I had no gift for. Yet, <laughs> right, you know? right. And if you're not a great melody writer, which I was never a great melody writer, I didn't think, up-tempo is a good avenue to go. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we started writing these up-tempo songs, and they're very country. One time, we wrote this real country song, and at the end, I, I'll never forget, we were talking about it, and... and John or I said, you know, that's really country. And Bob said, well, it's the coin of the realm. <laughs> <laughs> so then we started writing these songs that were basically the same character in all these different situations. Huh, and so Mirror Mirror was this guy where his girlfriend had left him. Right. You know, or his wife. And, you know, he was sitting in the house and all the furniture's gone. And my favorite line which is of course mine is in the <laughs> second verse about you know she didn't leave a table she didn't leave a chair but she knew what she was doing when she left you hanging there right <laughs> and i had to argue for that when i said guys this is what <laughs> this is what makes the song We just, we had fun. Yeah. And we had this character and some of the songs worked and some of them didn't. Right. But you just never knew what what we did was we straddled what we called the, the DePiro line, which right. was the line between just plain stupid and $100,000. <laughs> <laughs> the infamous DePiro line. That's amazing. Well, in 1992, you hit the top five with Tracy Lawrence's recording of Running Behind, followed that same year with a top 10 single by Chris Ledoux called What You Gonna Do With a Cowboy, and that's one that you wrote with uh, some fellow named Garth Brooks. Yeah, he was a boot salesman. Was he? <laughs> well, actually, he was, he, when he was selling boots, he sang demos for me, and then our companies, uh, Midsummer and Major Bob kind of merged together in 1989. Right. And and Garth had just released his first single and was starting to catch on, especially in Texas. And so he was he would be in town some and we wrote two songs. Right. And we wrote uh first song was Victim of the Game. Hmm. And we haven't talked about that, but that changed my life. 
1989, we wrote that song, Victim of the Game, and in 1990, I think maybe towards the end of 90, he re- he did uh, No Fences. Yeah. And it came out. Right. And everyone in America bought it. <laughs> Every, I mean, it sold 17 million copies. It's insane. That was where Cindy looked at me and she said, oh my gosh. Right. I, I had a check in my hand. I said, we can pay off that van we just bought. <laughs> right. And then it was, we can get a bigger house. Right, right, right. Because we had right. so many children. Right. And it, I mean, the, the business has changed. Like, oh, it's changed For that not so even much. being a single, an album yeah. cut, you could, you know, yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, nobody's going to sell 17 million of anything ever again. No, no, <laughs> never again. It's Man. changed so much. Yeah, yeah. That's wild. Well, in uh, 1993, 1994, and 1995, you scored three consecutive number one hits, starting with uh, Money in the Bank by John Anderson. Got my paycheck in my pocket, some gas in the tank. Honey, you love better than money in the bank. Like that's Mirror a, that's, Mirror, that's, that's Bob a, and, yeah, that's and John us. Gerard. Yeah. That's our character. Yeah, your character. What, what can you tell us about that song? It was just fun. Now, did you guys ever name this fictional character? No. That you're... <laughs> no, I never really had a Never name. got a name. Uh-uh. Um. Well, the next one of those consecutive number one hits was If You've Got Love, which was a hit for John Michael Montgomery. You can turn an ordinary picture into a priceless work of art. It's what you can do if you've got love in your heart. That's one that you wrote with Steve Seskin. And, you know, you've worked with a lot of different co-writers over the years. And I'm curious in what ways getting together with different collaborators sort of influences the the process. And I guess what I'm really asking is, do you go to certain people for one type of song or other people for another, or do you just kind of like let the chips fall? I'm a, yeah, I'm a definitely a let the chips fall guy. Yeah. But on that particular song, and I met Seskin because he was writing for your dad's company for Little Big, or, uh, Little Big Town. Little yeah. Big Town, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so he was around DePiro and them and, and, but Steve was more of a sensitive, I mean, right. he wrote these sensitive ballads. DePiro would just shake his head. <laughs> right. And so uh, anyway, he came in one that day and he had just, he had had that hit or he was having that hit, uh, Life's a Dance right. on John right. Michael Montgomery, which was just a great song yeah. that he and Alan Chamblin wrote. And I just, I had, you know, I had been studying, trying to figure out what to write how to have hits right and i thought you know being positive definitely has its its <laughs> advantages <laughs> as opposed to my natural self and so i said steve i just want to write the most positive song right. i've ever written and we wrote right. that yeah and we you know it was okay but we never thought anything of it and yeah i tell you steve had the hit on on John Michael. And so when John Michael Montgomery was in the San Francisco area where Steve lived, uh, Steve was always on the bus. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I hate to go on somebody's bus, right. But Steve doesn't care. Yeah. So he gets on the bus and he has four cassettes right. to give to John Michael Montgomery. He has 16 songs. He's wow. pitching to him. <laughs> wow. And our song is number four on tape. Number four. Right. If you got love. The, the last one. Yeah. And then he, he calls me uh, whenever and he says, you won't believe this, but John Michael called me and said, he's going to cut this song of ours. Wow. <laughs> so, and then it was a single. Right. And that record sold 4 million copies. Right, right. So 
I mean, that, that was the heyday. Yeah, yeah. That was when you wanted to be in this business. Right, right. It's amazing. The third song in that string of number ones I mentioned was Reba McIntyre's recording of A Heart is Lonely Hunter, which is also the title of Carson McCullough's first novel, which she published in 1940. And there's kind of this literature theme running through a number of your songs. Rick Trevino's 1995 hit Bobby Ann Mason, which is a song that you wrote solo, shares a name with the real-life writer who, who wrote In Country in 1985. Yeah, it was a, it was which a great is, book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 1985 was the same year that Stephen Dobbins published Cold Dog Soup, which became the title of a song you wrote with the great yeah, that's kind of guy a, Clark. I would stand at Davis Kid bookstores looking at, <laughs> at the titles, and yeah, and then I, I read all these books, and I just looked, like on Bobby Ann Mason, I looked... In her books, I thought there has got to be something in here that would make a title. Yeah, and then yeah. I just ended up with her name. <laughs> <laughs> right. So obviously, literature was a was a source of yeah. of inspiration, uh, and songwriters, you know, they're always looking for for ideas. So literature and and what were what were some of the other sources of of inspiration for you, just in terms of you know, it, it's all about getting the idea. You know what to do with it once the idea is there. Well, eventually, you know what to do with it. But, you know, it was literature. I majored in literature in college. Yeah. I mean, so literature was, I mean, I loved all these old books. Right. And I, I've always been a big reader. And so that was a, that helped. And right. then just the chaos of my life, you know, fed into me being a songwriter. And then weird things hmm. like being the youngest of five right and left-handed <laughs> and, and a dysfunctional family right right everybody's family is dysfunctional in some way but like if you talk about me and jeffrey Steele at the same time right. jeffrey's the youngest of five left-handed <laughs> we both played sports right in high school and a little bit in college yeah so we're competitive right and you know there's just things that we've developed these theories about what makes a songwriter. Right. And my depression was such a big part of it. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I was a different guy every day. Hmm. And it wasn't until I got on antidepressants in the late nineties that all of a sudden I thought, Oh, people <laughs> live like this where they're the same person every day. Right. Right. So even it's a sort of interesting mix of you, you, you've got your own life that you're drawing from and your own sort yeah. of internal issues. You've got the literature and then you've got this fictional, fictional uh, character. character, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's like the stew from the serious to the goofy. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And it, and it was the part that I learned from DePiro of the, of the, just being the, the goofy part. Yeah. You yeah. Know? I mean, I, I like to be funny, but writing songs, I was rarely goofy. Right, right. You know? Yeah. But yeah. I got into that with the Piro. Right, right. Well, once we get around to 1995, your uh, streak of hits starts bordering on the absurd. Yeah. Uh, Neil McCoy's recording of their play in our song was a top five hit. Uh, Faith Hill's It Matters to Me and Lone Star's No News both hit number one. Um, and then came one of my favorites, uh, Heads Carolina, Tales California, which was a major hit for Jody Messina. Heads Tim uh, 
Nichols came in and he had read the follow-up book by the guy who wrote uh, The Bridges in Madison County. Right. He came in and said, you know, the book wasn't very good, but there was this character, like I think his name was Texas Jack or something, and he said, well, let's flip a coin and uh, heads will go to California and tails will go to Texas. And Tim said, you know, I, I just thought maybe we could do something with that. And so I started in my little mind thinking about, I love California because that's where I'm from. Right. And I thought one coast and Carolina on the other coast. And it just made a lot of sense. And especially when you want to get away from the middle of America and get to a coast quickly. (laughs) Right, right. right. And so I thought heads Carolina, tails California. That seemed like a pretty cool thing. And then, uh, you know, you, you have to figure out what, how you're going to do it musically. I, I was trying at the time to channel Bruce Springsteen. Right. And I had heard Gary Berg had this cool song on Ty Herndon. Uh, and the melody was like, da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. And I thought, what if I went, da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da. Right. Flip it. <laughs> very, this is very, I got this like from Mozart and Bach. <laughs> right. So... So we came up, we started writing that chorus. And when I'm teaching my daughter or talking to my daughter about writing songs, I'm always stressing how important good rhymes are, you know, yeah. and, and if you can make it a perfect rhyme, do it. Yeah. And she'll look at me and she'll say, Dad, heads Carolina, tails California, somewhere greener, somewhere warmer, up in the mountains, down by the ocean, where it don't matter as long as we're going somewhere together. I got a quarter, heads Carolina, tails California. <laughs> Pure rhyme. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like I said, if it's you always, can. <laughs> it's always the exceptions that, right. that work better. <laughs> right, right, right. The other thing about that song was that was the first demo that Jason Sellers ever sang for me. Hmm. And you probably don't know Jason Sellers. He had a little record deal at one point. We always thought he'd be a star, but Jason's personality kind of always worked against things like that. <laughs> But uh, his ex-wife is a star. Her name is Leanne Womack. Ah, uh, yes. You know. <laughs> but Jason sang that demo for me, and it opened up a whole new venue. I mean, these were the kind of songs I could write, but I could never find anybody to sing them. Right. And when Jason sang Heads Carolina, and he sang all the harmonies on it, right. and I thought, oh my gosh. This is this is Nirvana, right? Right, here. right. I found and, the guy that can yes. get my songs across. So for the next couple of years, Jason sang a million demos for me. Yeah, and that you know that expanded my career. Yeah, yeah, greatly. Yeah, well, well. After Paul Brandt's top five hit, "My Heart Has a History," you hit another streak of three consecutive number <laughs> ones. This time they all came within the same year, 1996. And so I want to just briefly go through each of the three and just get kind of the first thing that pops into your head about either the writing the song or, or some memory related to the song. The first one um, was Rhett Aiken's Don't Get Me Started. There were church bells ringing and angels singing all gathered round heaven's door. a new guy in town and he was an artist 
So Sam Hogan and I had been writing a bunch together. And so we got Rhett to come in and to write with us. And and Sam and I would look at each other and we'd, we'd go, Rhett, when do you have to go out back on the road? <laughs> <laughs> so we could write the verses. <laughs> but Rhett's turned into, God, he's had probably had more hits than I have as a writer. Yeah, so, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> he had to learn. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> um, so the next one, another uh, one with DePiro and Gerard, the the winning combination uh, was George Strait with uh, Blue Clear Sky. Here she comes, a walking, talking true love, saying I've been looking for you, love. Surprise, your new love has arrived. There's a great story, but DePiro has to tell you that one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, he went and saw Forrest Gump. Yeah. Okay. Okay. (laughs) And that's where the line came from. Yeah. Kenny said it. And I I, and I understand that there was George wanted to change it, right? Didn't he? Yeah. Oh yeah. George wanted to change it, and DePiro somehow DePiro's talking to him on the phone. And I tell everybody, if I had known this, I would have been peeing in my pants because he's telling George he won't change it. Right. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, none of us had had a George Strait cut right, at right, that point. Right. But it all happened very quickly. Uh, and then the third one of those was Ricochet with Daddy's Money. She's got her daddy's money, her mama's good looks, more laughs than a stack of Yeah, and that was what DePiro and Seskin. DePiro and Seskin. <laughs> and the worlds collide. Right, completely. <laughs> and uh, Bob didn't really necessarily, Steve wasn't his favorite co-writer. Because, you know, I mean, they're they're just looking at the world from They're very different places. people, yeah. Very different, completely different. <laughs> right. You know, eventually we turned this into a routine. And but I say Bob was... He called to see if he could schedule a colonoscopy and get out of the co-write. <laughs> <laughs> but he couldn't. His doctor was seeing someone else's butt that day. <laughs> anyway, so we just, we sat around and uh, we were talking about this demo singer, Jeff, Cars- Jeff Carson, who was formerly Jeff Herndon. Right. And Jeff sang a million demos for me too. Yeah. And uh, I, we were talking about him and his wife because Jeff would show up at demos driving a, a, a Jaguar. Right. And that doesn't, you know, there's, there's, something's wrong with this picture. Right. Because demo <laughs> singers would make 30 or $40 a song. Right, right. But so I said, well, you know, I think Jeff's wife, uh, Kim, her, her family has money, I think. And, you know, she's real pretty. And so we... There we go. Right. <laughs> Daddy's money. Mama's good looks. Right, right, right. Well, as if you did not have enough success in 1996, you hit the top 10 a couple more times before the year was out just for good measure. Uh, Lone Star's Running Away With My Heart and Sammy Kershaw's Fidelia. Um, I mean, 96 is like, it's almost, I, I was laughing as I was researching this in terms of just how much success you had in that, that one year alone. But, I mean, maybe this is sort of an odd question, but when you have that kind of success and it's yeah. that phenomenal, 
does it make you nervous thinking about like what's next? How do I how do I top myself? Well, yeah. I mean, there's definitely things going on in my little brain. And so I was able to at least put it at some distance and not be completely emotionally enmeshed in it all. <laughs> and you know, and what what, what happened was I, I was gonna get nine uh, ASCAP awards wow. for the year of 96, which were given in 97. Yeah, yeah. And I, I realized I had a co-pub deal with Reba this was Mark D music. Right. And it was my first co-pub deal. And, you know, it was just, it was a good catalog. And I realized whoever owned that catalog was going to be ASCAP publisher of the year. Yeah. And it didn't matter to me, but I knew that some of these big guys really liked it. Yeah. To win things like that. Right. Sure. And so I started, I met with some attorneys and I said, I want to sell my catalog. Universal had offered me a whole bunch of money for the catalog. Yeah. But they would give me half my publishing on my old catalog mm. and an advance of half a million dollars right. that I would have to pay back, but it was still half a million dollars. Sure. And I was looking at this property and I thought, holy smokes, I could buy this river property in Steamboat Springs, Colorado with that little extra, Yeah. pay the tax on that and buy the property. Hmm. So that's what I did. Wow. So I sold my catalog. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, I was the ASCAP writer of the year and, you know, it was a really cool thing. And, and that's when the bottom fell out after that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the bottom didn't exactly fall, didn't out. The, fall out. The train, the train, the train kept rolling in 1997, you and, and Tim Nichols topped the charts with a couple songs, uh, this Ain't No Thinking Thing by Trace Atkins and yeah. I'd Rather Ride Around With You by Reba McIntyre. And, and you and Tim uh, have, have written quite a few songs together and he, he's one of the co-writers we haven't really talked much about. What's, what's the chemistry with, with you and Tim that you think works so well? Well, Tim, I may be the first to bring this to the public's attention, but in the writing room, a lot of times there's a cheerleader. Hmm. And DePiro is right. the greatest cheerleader ever. Yeah. Because he's also playing the guitar and he's singing and he's going, <laughs> God dang, I love this. Right, right. <laughs> and Ed Hill, man, I love this thing. I can't wait to demo it. Right. And Tim Nichols going, oh, this is great. We're, we're <laughs> right. going to get this. Right. You know, he says, I'm going to take it to Jody Messina. Right, right. So Tim's really good at that. Yeah. And he's also really good at rhymes. And just every once in a while, all it takes is one really cool rhyme. Right. So when we're writing uh, the Trace Adkins song, I got the idea from my kid's software called Thinking Things. Ah, okay. <laughs> this was in like 94, 95. Right, right. And so uh, Tim says, right brain, left brain. This, I think this ain't no thinking thing, right brain, left brain. Right. That's, you know, sometimes that's all it takes. Yeah, yeah. And we, the day we demoed that song, and Jason Sellers sang the demo. Right. But the day we demoed it, I said, we need to get together in the morning because the chorus isn't right. So we rewrote the whole chorus after right brain, left brain. Huh, interesting. Because right brain, left brain makes that song. That was the, that was yeah. the linchpin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. This ain't no thinking thing. Emotional devotion, passion that we can't hold back 
Well, another chart topper came with Lone Star's hit, Come Cryin' to Me, uh, in 1997, followed by Wade Hayes' top five single, The Day That She Left Tulsa in a Chevy, which is a killer title. Now, both of those songs, I mean, Come Cryin' to Me, The Day That She Left Tulsa in a Chevy, those are the kind of... Just the titles alone, you know, forget the song, just the titles alone, you're like, okay, it, it makes you want to listen to it. Are you somebody who who writes from a title typically? Yeah. Typically, yeah. Yeah. And it was the day that she left Memphis. Oh, yeah. Jason Sellers sang the demo. Okay. But uh, I had been, I was driving my family to Destin, Florida for spring break. You know, right. I would drive the van. They'd be watching <laughs> What About Bob in right. the back. <laughs> I never saw the movie, but I heard it You've about heard it. <laughs> 20 times. Right. And we were driving through Birmingham, and, and I'm, it's raining. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, after about 200 miles, my mind starts thinking of titles. Right. <laughs> and I thought, I thought about it in a Chevy in a hurry and a pouring down rain. And that's, what, that's where that song came from. Yeah. Sorry yeah. about that. In a Chevy in a hurry and a pouring down rain. With a caution light flashing in the passing lane From a bridge I watched our dreams going down the drain In a Chevy in a hurry in a pouring down rain So in, in the 1990s you established yourself as a monster hit maker But in 2000 you found the kind of success that every writer dreams of yeah. with a with a classic. Of course, I'm talking about Leanne Womack's recording of I Hope You Dance, which became a, a number one country hit, top 15 pop hit, CMA and ACM Song of the Year, Grammy's Country Song of the Year. I hope you still feel small when you stand beside the ocean. Whenever Promise me that you'll give faith the fighting chance And when you get the choice to sit it out or dance I hope you dance After uh, I had all those hits and sold my catalog, I signed with Universal Music. Then I went into the deepest depression probably of my life for about six months. Hmm. And I... I had my co-writers uh, like Tim and Ed, and I'm thinking you guys have got to find somebody else to write with because this isn't this is mm. that part's over. Yeah. I could just feel that it was over. People huh. got tired of me being clever, huh. I think. And you know they just move on. Ch music music's always changing. Yeah. And so then I got a, an, an antidepressant that didn't work, and then I got a one that worked, and I thought, oh. You know, the world has changed. Right. And I was just writing songs, and you know, I was getting some cuts, but, I, you know, I wasn't the guy I had been. Hmm. And so I, I started writing with Tia Sillers. Right. She had, called, she had approached me about seven years earlier right. to write, and it was just before I signed it, Starstruck, and I thought, this is not what I want to do, write with a girl who's still in college Hmm. and his sensitive yeah 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 <laughs> you know it's not it wasn't where my my success was tracking huh so like she likes to say she she asked me to write and i called her seven years later and said yeah <laughs> right, right so we started writing and the first song we wrote uh martina mcbride cut hmm. it's called i ain't going nowhere and it was tia's idea and it was kind of a song to to 
tell her husband that it was going to be okay. They were going to stay together. Right. Well, they didn't. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't okay. They didn't stay together. Right. As DePiro would say. <laughs> so uh, then she's going through a divorce. So I, I guess we had been writing for a year, 18 months or something. And we'd written a bunch of other songs, but so she's going there divorcing and she goes to Apalachicola, Florida for two weeks just to get away and, you know, try to clear her head. And she comes back and I guess I was the first person she wrote with when she got back and she just came in the room with a legal pad and she had like five ideas written on and she read off the, li the list, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I just, I said... In all my wisdom, I said, well, let's write that one about if you get the choice to sit it out or dance, I hope you dance. Yeah. You know, so I've told her, she, I think there are 15 words. I said, those 15 <laughs> words have changed our lives. Right, right. <laughs> so then it was just knowing how to write it. Yeah. I think. And I think that's, as a songwriter, that was always my theme, just keep writing. Yeah. You know, you never know what day you're going to write a hit. Right. You have no idea. Yeah. And I had never had any luck with songs, you know, as sensitive as that, really, except maybe it matters to me. Yeah. H had you had any hits with a female? Oh, uh, with a female co-writer? No. Yeah. And I had written a lot of songs with women, but I don't think we... Never a hit. Huh. Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. Lisa Silver, I wrote a million songs with, hmm. and we got close, but we never really had a hit. Yeah. Yeah. So was I Hope You Dance, was it sort of written about her relationship and her... her... No, it was just written about life. Yeah. Once we got into it. Yeah. First, the very first thing we did was I thought, well, we had to put this dance in some... Right. In some form, you know, it's not really a regular kind of chorus. And it's what it is. It's the same chords that What If God Was One of Us. Oh, yeah, yeah. Joan Osborne. Yeah. yeah. But, but he put it in, you know, the words are in different places. Right, right. And yeah. it's a very common chord arrangement. Right. It's just, you know, where does that dance go? Because it's like the most important word. Yeah. I yeah. hope you dance. Yeah. yeah. So really the chorus is like one word. Right, almost. right. What is the relationship between the person who is speaking and the person they're speaking to? in this song? Well, you know, it's nebulous. Those are the, those are probably the three most important words of the song. I hope you. Yeah. And, and, and it's how the song starts. And so what you want to do when you're writing a song is you want the singer to sing it like it's them, but you want the people in the audience to think, well, this is my song for this person. You right. Know? Right. So it, you want to be specific, right? But you want to be general. Yeah, yeah. My memory of the song is, it was probably around two thousand one, shortly after I moved to California, uh -huh. and we drove from Los Angeles up to Mammoth Mountain with friends to go skiing. So my, I'm driving. My wife's in the front seat. We have three friends sitting and in, crammed into the back seat, and uh, I hope you're not and, in the Honda and, Fit. Uh, <laughs> we may, we very well may no, we didn't have no, the Honda Fit, but I think it was probably a Honda Civic, and yeah. we were crammed. You know, we yeah. were all crammed in. And, and one of the friends on one side of the back seat and then the other friend on the other side, so there's a, an innocent bystander in the middle. I Hope You Dance comes on the radio and the two on the ends get in an argument. I'm driving up the mountain and it's starting to snow and I'm like, you know, yeah. and they're, they're having this yeah. argument. And one of them is saying, I think this is such a great 
song. What an awesome uh, lyric. And the other one is saying, I don't think that this person needs to give the, the person who's listening permission to all this just because they've broken up. And then he's saying, well, it doesn't say they broke up. There's, there's nothing about any yeah. kind of breakup. And, and she's like, well, I think that's implied. And the, this goes on for 30 <laughs> minutes about whether or not this is yeah. uh, condescending because it's a right. breakup or because it's just a good wish. It could be a parent to a, to a child. Right. And I, every time I think of that song, I think about this intense uh, argument that occurred for at least a half hour wow. over, a, over a song. <laughs> I, I like to inspire people. <laughs> right. So, you know, you, you got the conversation going on that yeah. one. <laughs> well, you know what it's come to be to me? The other thing I haven't mentioned that shaped my life was when I was 22, my best friend was murdered. Mm. And, uh, I mean, it was just awful. Yeah. And I've gotten involved with Mom's Demand action for gun sense in America. And I, right. you know, I kind of threw off the whole gun thing. Right. And I thought I need to do something for my, for my friend who yeah. was murdered. Yeah. But I've come to see it as this song, uh, this, the person who doesn't survive saying, telling the person who does survive. Mm. And that's where it really, yeah, that's where it makes me cry. Yeah. That's a whole other dimension. Yeah. yeah. And it's a big dimension. Because Tia's husband just died. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so she's, I know she did an interview. She says, I wrote this song about, you know, going on with your life. Yeah. And now I have to go on with mine. Yeah. She didn't know she was writing it to no, her future she didn't self. No, Yeah. Because it's so much that way. Yeah. But then again, I met a guy from Chicago at the medallion ceremony for the Country Music Hall of Fame. And he said, you know, in Chicago... You can't go to a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah without hearing that damn song. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of stuff. <laughs> right here, can't get away from it. Um, well, in 2000, Martina McBride hit the top 10 with There You Are, followed soon after mm. by Alan Jackson's big hit, That'd Be All Right. You know, by that point, you had written 25 top 10 hits, more than a dozen mm. number ones. Um, but I imagine that with... All of that success, everything that you've done, you probably get introduced as this is the guy that that wrote "I Hope You Dance." Yeah. <laughs> does yeah. it does it become? And and I know obviously no one wants to look a gift horse in the mouth, but does it become challenging to to get recognition for the full range of your work when you've when you have written a standard, when you have written something that everyone on the planet knows? Well, it's hard, I think, when you do write something like that. I mean, not that it's hard on your wallet. Right. It's really fun. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's some stuff to that. Yeah. 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 I mean, DePiro, when he hears that song, he probably goes, oh, that's a damn song again. Because <laughs> 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 it's so, you know, he, I, I don't think he would have written it. Right. But, uh, yeah. It's weird. It's taken years to get, you know, to get it all. Right. Kind of, I mean, I'm 67 years old now, but I've, I feel pretty peaceful about it all. Yeah. And I found now what I, I do, I do these shows and I have a couple friends who uh, sing and play with me, uh, Sarah Majors and Megan Mullins and, and 
you know, I do all my, a lot of my catalog. Right. And people go, oh my God, you wrote that too. And then at the end we do, I hope you dance. Right. And they go, oh my God. <laughs> right. So, right. yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm enjoying it now. Right. But it's taken, it took me a long time. Right. Right. And they don't. To enjoy your success. Nobody, yeah. Nobody really gives you instruction on how this is going to work out. How are you going to yeah. handle all this stuff? Right. Right. But the worst thing probably was when Tia and I were talking one day and I said, I said, you know, I had a I, I had a big career and now I've had this career song. And I said, You have this career song and it and it's really gonna be hard to have a, a hmm. career. Yeah, yeah. And it has been. It's been right. really hard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's at least you had, had stockpiled yeah. all the success before. I yeah, had, yeah, yeah. I front loaded yeah. <laughs> or, or back loaded or something. Oh, which kinda leads me to, to this is my my last question for you, but you were inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2009, but then had three cuts on Easton Corbin's debut album the following year. So you've reached this point in your life and your career where you, you've been recognized as one of the elder statesmen of Nashville's yeah. songwriting community. But you're you know you're still working. You're still working with a new generation uh -huh. of of writer artists. Talk about kind of that transition and and how you've sort of navigated the changes in nashville in the last few years for a long time i kept writing with everybody and you know and i would get in sessions and i would think oh, they don't really need me on this and hmm. it's not but i wrote a bunch my favorite co-writes were with uh, like brand brandy clark and sure. shane mcanally we've written a bunch of songs and you know i wrote those with them and but well, basically, that four years ago when uh, Sandy Hook happened, I said I'm not, you know, I'm not participating anymore in the NRA country music thing. And yeah. So I backed away from all of that, and I'm very happy. Yeah. And I've been riding with my daughter for a few years, and I told her this year I said, "You're on your own." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you want me to come in and help on a song, you know, after you yeah. got something started. I'd be glad to do that, but I want you on your own. And your daughter's name is Sophie, right? Sophie. Yeah. yeah. Sophie so she, so, so you have passed the mantle to her. I have passed the mantle. <laughs> and I'm actually working on a song by myself. You know, and uh, about every third night, I'll pick up my guitar and yeah. work on it a little bit more. Yeah. You start writing songs that are very personal. Right. And I got to Nashville and I was still writing these very personal songs. And there's only so much demand for wrist slashing, <laughs> you know? So I thought, well, maybe I need to be less personal. And, and, and then with the Piro, we developed this whole character. Yeah. But then I've not, now I'm in this position where I can go back personal again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I made a CD a, a year ago called first fast car. And, and it's the song first fast car is about my friend who was murdered. Hmm. You know, yeah. so I'm back and I, I've circle. been the full circle. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, yeah. Now I'm writing personal songs. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really happy with what happened. Yeah. And now I can just go to the dog park <laughs> <laughs> or go fishing. No pressure. Or go boogie boarding. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's cool. Well, Mark, uh, thank you so much for taking time today. This has been a lot of fun. Well, it's, it's always fun. It's what the peer would say. I've talked enough about myself. Now you talk about me. <laughs> <laughs> 
thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Again, you can find us by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. While Songcraft is available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help Songcraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards and experiences as a member. We look forward to getting together again with you for the next episode of Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters.